Chapter Fifteen, Part Two, of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Tuttle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, by Maisie Ward. Chapter Fifteen, Part Two. A keen observer, often added to the Beaconsfield community in those days, was Father, now Monsignor, John O'Connor, close friend of both Gilbert and Francis, and inspirer of Father Brown, of detective fame. They had first become friends in 1904, when they met at the house of a friend in Keithley, Yorkshire, and walked back over the moors together to visit Francis Steinthal at Ilkley. This Jew of Frankfurt descent was a great friend of the Chestertons, and on their many visits to him, the friendship with Father O'Connor ripened. With both Francis and Gilbert, it was among the closest of their lives. Their letters to him show it. The long talks and companionable walks over the moors have an atmosphere of intimacy that is all the more convincing because so little stressed in his book. Father O'Connor has a pardonable pride in the idea that their talks suggested ideas to Gilbert. He takes pleasure in his character of Father Brown, but he reveals the atmosphere of unique confidence and intimacy by the very absence of all parade of it. Both he and Gilbert have told the story of how the idea of the detective priest first dawned. On their second meeting, Father O'Connor had startled, indeed almost shattered Gilbert, with certain rather lurid knowledge of human depravity which he had acquired in the course of his priestly experience. At the house to which they were going, two Cambridge undergraduates spoke disparagingly of the cloistered habits of the Catholic clergy, saying that to them it seemed that to know and meet evil was a far better thing than the innocence of such ignorance. To Gilbert, still under the shock of a knowledge compared with which these two Cambridge gentlemen knew about as much of real evil as two babies in the same perambulator. The exquisite irony of this remark suggested a thought. Why not a whole comedy of cross-purposes, based on the notion of a priest, with a knowledge of evil deeper than that of the criminal he is converting? He carried out this idea in the story of the Blue Cross, the first Father Brown detective story. Father O'Connor's account adds the details that he had himself once boasted of buying five sapphires for five shillings, and that he always carried a large umbrella and many brown paper parcels. At the Steinthal dining table, an artist friend of the family made a sketch of Father O'Connor, which later appeared on the wrapper of The Innocence of Father Brown. Beyond one or two touches of this sort, the idea had been a suggestion for a character, not a portrait, and in the autobiography, and in the Dickens, Gilbert had a good deal to say of interest to the novelist about how suggestions come and are used. He never believed that Dickens drew a portrait, as it were, in the round, Nature just gives hints to the creative artist. 
and it used to amuse Father Brown to find that such touches of observation, as noting where an ashtray had got hidden behind a book, seemed to Gilbert quasi-miraculous. Left to himself, he merely dropped ashes on the floor from his cigar. He did not smoke a pipe, and cigarettes were prone to set him on fire in one place or another. A frequent visitor, Father O'Connor noted his fashion of work and reading, and the abstracted way he often moved and spoke. Call it mooning, but he never mooned. He was always working out something in his mind. And when he drifted from his study to the garden and was seen making deadly passes with his sword-stick at the dahlias, we knew that he had got to a dead end in his composition and was getting his thoughts into order. He played often, too, with a huge knife, which he had for twenty-four years. He took it abroad with him, took it to bed. Francis had to retrieve it often from under his pillow in some hotel. Once, at a lecture in Dublin, he drew it absent-mindedly to sharpen a pencil. As it was seven and a half inches long shut and fourteen open, the amusement of the audience may be imagined. In origin, it was, Father O'Connor relates, a Texan or Mexican general utility implement. It was with this knife that he won my daughter's heart many years later, when she, aged three, had not seen him for some time and had grown shy of him. A little scared of his enormousness, she stood far off. He did not look in her direction, but began to open and shut the vast blade. Next, she was on his knee. A little later, we heard her remark, "'Uncle Gilbert, you make jokes just like my daddy.' And from him came, "'I do my best.' The prototype of Father Brown tells of the easy job in detection when Gilbert had been reading a book. He had just been reading a shilling pamphlet by Dr. Horton on the Roman menace or some such fearful wild fowl. I knew he had read it, because no one else could when he had done. Most of his books, as and when read, had gone through every indignity a book may suffer and live. He turned it inside out, dog-eared it, penciled it, sat on it, took it to bed and rolled on it, and got up again and spilled tea on it, if he were sufficiently interested. So Dr. Horton's pamphlet had a refuted look when I saw it. Father O'Connor was not the only friend who was added to the Beaconsfield group with some frequency. It was easy enough to run down from London, or over from Welwyn, home of GBS, or from Oxford, or Cambridge. It was most conveniently central. Gilbert's brethren of the pen were especially apt to appear at all seasons, and always found friendly welcome. For he continued to call himself neither poet nor philosopher, but journalist. Father O'Connor had tried to persuade him, as he neatly puts it, to begin to print on handmade paper with gilt edges. But Francis begged him to drop the idea. You will not change Gilbert. You will only fidget him. He is bent on being a dolly journalist, to paint the town red, and he does not need style to do that. All he wants is buckets and buckets of red paint." Journalists, coming down from London, describe the jolly welcome. Beer poured, the sword-stick flourished, conversation flowing as freely as the beer. 
It meant a pleasant afternoon, and it meant good copy. They visited him in the country. They observed him in town. One interviewer returned with a photo which showed Chesterton in a somewhat negligee condition. The result, as he admitted, of reading W. W. Jacobs, rolling about on the floor, waving his legs in the air. He was seen working a swan boat at the White City. He collapsed it, and the placid lake became a raging sea. He was seen thinking and even reading under the strangest weather conditions. One man saw him under a gas lamp in the street, in pouring rain, with an open book in his hand. Reading in Fleet Street one day, Gilbert discovered suddenly that the Lord Mayor's show was passing. He began to reflect on the show so deeply that he forgot to look at it. Over roads I remember as a little triangular house, much too small for the sort of fun the Chestertons enjoyed. Francis bought a field opposite to it, and there built a studio. The night the studio was opened, Father O'Connor remembers a large party at which charades were acted. He himself, as Canon Cross Keys, gave away the word so that Belfry was loudly shouted by the opposition group. The rival company, acting torture, got away with it successfully, especially, complains our Yorkshire priest, as Ur was pronounced yaw in the best southern manner. On that night, returning to the house, Father O'Connor offered his arm to Gilbert, who refused it with a finality foreign to our friendship. Father O'Connor went on ahead, and Gilbert, following in the dark, stumbled over a flower pot and broke his arm. Perhaps because his size made him self-consciously aware of his awkwardness, Gilbert hated being helped. Father Ignatius Rice, another close friend, says the only time he ever saw Gilbert annoyed was when he offered him an arm going upstairs. Gilbert and Francis would both visit Father O'Connor in his Yorkshire parish of Heckmondwike. One year they took rooms at Ilkley, and he remembers Gilbert adorning with huge frescoes the walls of the attic, and Francis sitting in the window singing, O Swallow, Swallow, Flying South. While Gilbert did a blazon of some fantastic coat of arms. The closeness of the intimacy is seen in a letter quoted by Father O'Connor, in which Gilbert explained why Francis and he were unable to come to Heckmondwike for a promised visit. July 3rd, 1909. I would not write this to anyone else, but you combine so unusually in your own single personality the characters of one priest... Two, human being. Three, man of the world. Four, man of the other world. Five, man of science. Six, old friend. Seven, new friend. Not to mention Irishman and picture dealer. That I don't mind suggesting the truth to you. Francis has just come out of what looked bad enough to be an illness, and is just going to plunge into another one of her recurrent problems of pain and depression. The two may just be a bit too much for her, and I want to be with her every night for a few days. There's an Irish bull for you. One of the mysteries of marriage, which must be a sacrament, and an extraordinary one too, is that a man evidently useless, like me, can become, at certain instants, indispensable. And the further oddity, 
which I invite you to explain on mystical grounds, is that he never feels so small as when he knows that he is necessary. But sometimes she would send him off, whether she was well or ill, and on Father O'Connor would rest the heavy responsibility of getting him on to his next destination, or safe back home. He tells of one such experience. He was most dutiful and obedient to orders, but they had to be written ones, and backed by the spoken word. He brought his dress suit, oh, with what loving care, to Bradford on Sunday, for Sheffield on Monday. But a careful host found it under the bed in Bradford, just as his train left for Sheffield. Sent at once it was to Beaconsfield, where it landed at 5 p.m. on Thursday, just allowing him ten minutes to change, and in train for London. Scene at Beaconsfield. What on earth have you done with your dress suit, Gilbert? I must have left it behind, darling, but I brought back the ties, didn't I? Another time he came back without his pajamas. They had been lost early in the journey. Why didn't you buy some more? his wife asked. I didn't know pajamas were things you could buy, he said, surprised. Probably, if one were Gilbert, one couldn't. Father O'Connor, arriving at Overroads without baggage, found that Gilbert's pajamas went round him exactly twice. Lecturing engagements had, of course, not come to an end with the move, although they had mercifully somewhat lessened. What increased with the distance from London was the problem, never fully solved, of getting Gilbert to the right place, at the right time, and in clothes not too wildly wrong. When he lectured in Lancashire, they stayed at Crosby with Francis Blundell, my brother-in-law, and my sister remembers Francis as incessantly looking through her bag for letters and sending telegrams to confirm engagements that had come unstuck or to refuse others that were in debate. The celebrated, and now almost legendary, telegram from Gilbert to Francis, told as from a hundred different cities, was really sent, Am in Market Harborough. Where ought I to be? Desperate, she wired, Home, because, as she told me later, it was easier to get him home and start him off again. That day's engagement was lost past recall. Charles Rowley, of the Ancoats Brotherhood, received a wire, reply paid, from Snow Hill Station, Birmingham. Am I coming to you tonight, or what? Reply. Not this Tuesday, but next Wednesday. So, home he came again, to Overroads. The Chestertons made a host of friends in Beaconsfield, but the children always held pride of place. The doctor's little boy, running along the top of the wall, looked down at Gilbert and remarked, to his delight, "'I think you're an ogre!' But when the nurse was heard threatening punishment if he did not get down that minute, the child was told by the ogre, "'This wall is meant for little boys to run along.' One child, asked after a party if Mr. Chesterton had been very clever, said, "'You should see him catch buns in his mouth!' What was unusual, both with Gilbert and Francis, was the fact that they never allowed their disappointment in the matter of children to make them sour 
or jealous of others who had the joy that they had not. All through their lives, they played with other people's children. They chose on a train compartment full of children. They planned amusements. They gave presents to the children of their friends. Over my son's bed hangs a silver crucifix, chosen with loving care by Francis after Gilbert had stood godfather to him. And he was one of very many. Gilbert was, however, a complete realist as to the ways and manners of the species he so loved. Playing with children, he wrote at this time, is a glorious thing. But the journalist in question has never understood why it was considered a soothing or idyllic one. It reminds him, not of watering little budding flowers, but of wrestling for hours with gigantic angels and devils. Moral problems of the most monstrous complexity besiege him incessantly. He has to decide, before the awful eyes of innocence, whether, when a sister has knocked down a brother's bricks, in revenge for the brother having taken two sweets out of his turn, it is endurable that the brother should retaliate by scribbling on the sister's picture-book, and whether such conduct does not justify the sister in blowing out the brother's unlawfully lit match. Just as he is solving this problem upon principles of the highest morality, it occurs to him suddenly that he has not written his Saturday article, and that there is only about an hour to do it in. He wildly calls to somebody, probably the gardener, to telephone to somewhere for a messenger. He barricades himself in another room and tears his hair, wondering what on earth he shall write about. A drumming of fists on the door outside and a cheerful bellowing encourage and clarify his thoughts. He sits down desperately. The messenger rings at the bell. The children drum on the door. The servants run up from time to time to say the messenger is getting bored. And the pencil staggers along, making the world a present of fifteen hundred unimportant words and making Shakespeare a present of a portion of Gray's elegy, putting fantastic roots wreathed high instead of antique roots peep out. Then the journalist sends off his copy and turns his attention to the enigma of whether a brother should commandeer a sister's necklace because the sister pinched him at Littlehampton. In the notebook he had written, North Berwick. On the sands I romped with children. Do you blame me that I did not improve myself by bottling anemones? But I say that these children will be men and women, and I say that the anemones will not be men and women. Not just yet, at least, let us say. And I say that the greatest men of the world might romp with children, and that I should like to see Shakespeare romping with children, and Browning and Darwin romping with children, and Mr. Gladstone romping with children, and Professor Huxley romping with children, and all the bishops romping with children. And I say that if a man had climbed to the stars and found the secrets of the angels, the best thing and the most useful thing he could do would be to come back and romp with children.
M.V. An almost elvish little girl, with loose brown hair, doing needlework. I have spoken to her once or twice. I think I must get another book, of the same size as this, to make notes about her. From the Christmas party at Overroads, all adults were excluded. No nurses, no parents. The children would hang on Gilbert's neck in an ecstasy of affection, and he and Francis schemed out endless games for them. Gilbert had started a toy theatre before he left London, cutting out and painting figures and scenery, and devising plots for plays. Two of the favourites were St. George and the Dragon and the Seven Champions of Christendom. The atmosphere of Overroads is perhaps best conveyed through Gilbert's theories concerning his toy theatre and the other theatricals, such as charades sometimes played there. When it came to the toy theatre set up to amuse the children, he frankly felt that he was himself child number one and got the most amusement out of it. He felt, too, that the whole thing was good enough to be worth analyzing in its rules and its effects, and so he drew up a paper of rules and suggestions for its use. I will not say positively that a toy theater is the best of theaters, though I have had more fun out of it than out of any other, but I will say positively that the toy theater is the best of all toys. It sometimes fails, but generally because people are mistaken in the matter of what it is meant to do, and what it can or cannot be expected to do, as if people should use a toy balloon as a football, or a skipping rope as a hammock. Now the first rule may seem rather contradictory, but it is quite true, and really quite simple. In a small theater, because it is a small theater, you cannot deal with small things. Because it is a small theater, it must only deal with large things. You can introduce a dragon, but you cannot really introduce an earwig. It is too small for a small theater. And this is true, not only of small creatures, but of small actions, small gestures, and small details of any kind. All your effects must be made to depend on things like scenery and background. The sky and the clouds and the castles and the mountains and so on must be the exciting things, along with other things that move all of a piece, such as regiments and processions. Great and glorious things can be done with processions. In a real comedy, the whole excitement may consist in the nervous curate dropping his teacup though I do not recommend this incident for the drama of the drawing-room. But if he were nervous, let us say, about a thunderstorm, the toy theatre could hardly represent the nervousness, but it might manage the thunderstorm. It might be quite sensational, and yet entirely simple, for it would largely consist of darkening the stage and making horrible noises behind the scenes. The second and smaller rule that really follows from this is that everything dramatic should depend not on a character's action, but simply on his appearance. Shakespeare said of actors that they have their exits and their entrances, 
but these actors ought really to have nothing else except exits and entrances. The trick is to so arrange the tale that the mere appearance of a person tells the important truth about him. Thus, supposing the drama to be about St. George, let us say, the mere abrupt appearance of the dragon's head, if of a proper ferocity, will be enough to explain that he intends to eat people. And it will not be necessary for the dragon to explain at length, with animated gestures and playful conversation, that his nature is carnivorous, and that he has not merely dropped in to tea. There is some further discussion on color effects. I like very gay and glaring colors, and I like to give them a good chance to glare. The paper concludes on a more serious note. It is an old story, and for some a sad one, that in a sense these childish toys are more to us than they can ever be to children. We never know how much of our after-imaginations began with such a peep-show into paradise. I sometimes think that houses are interesting because they are so like dollhouses and I am sure that the best thing that can be said for many large theatres is that they may remind us of little theatres. I do not look back. I look forward to this kind of puppet play. I look forward to the day when I shall have time to play with it. Some day, when I am too lazy to write anything, or even to read anything, I shall retire into this box of marvels, and I shall be found still striving hopefully to get inside a toy theater. Adults as well as children enjoyed this toy, and it was often described by interviewers. Like the sword stick, the great cloak and flapping hat, it was felt by some to be Gilbert's way of attracting attention. But it was just one of Gilbert's ways of amusing himself. A small nephew of Francis was living with them at the time, and it was funny to watch him fencing with his huge uncle, who was obviously enjoying himself rather the more of the two. On my first visit to Overroads, I noticed how as we talked, my host's pencil never ceased. One evening, I collected and kept an imposing red Indian, and a caricature of Chesterton himself, in a wheelbarrow, being carried off to a bonfire. I came in, too, for one of the grown-up parties, in which guessing games were a feature. Lines from the poets were illustrated, and we had to guess them. At another party, Dr. Pocock told me G.K. did the Inns of Beaconsfield, of which the most successful drawing was that of a sadly dilapidated dragon being turned away from the inn door. Dragon discovers with disgust that he cannot put up at the George. Sometimes these drawings were the prize of whoever guessed the line of verse they illustrated. Sometimes they were sold for a local charity. The baby's convalescent home was a favorite object, and one admirable picture, reproduced in the colored lands, shows the despair of King Herod at discovering children convalescing from the massacre. The two closest friendships of early Beaconsfield life were with the rector, Mr. Comerline, and his wife, who are now dead, and Dr. and Mrs. Pocock. Dr. Pocock was the Chesterton's doctor, as well as their friend, and he tells me that his great difficulty in treating Gilbert 
lay in his detachment from his own physical circumstances. If there was anything wrong with him, he usually didn't notice it. He was the most uncomplaining person. You had to hunt him all over to find out if anything was wrong. This detachment from circumstances still extended to his appearance, and Francis one day begged Dr. Pocock to take him to a good tailor. It was a huge success. He had never looked so well as he did now. For a few weeks. And then the tailor said to Dr. Pocock, Mr. Chesterton has broken my heart. It took twice the material and twice the time to make for him, but I was proud of it. His tailor, like his doctor, was apt to become a friend. Mrs. Pocock recalls how he would go to a dinner of the tradesmen of Beaconsfield and come back intensely interested and wanting to tell her all about it. "'You always went away,' Dr. Pocock said, chuckling over something. And he summed up the years of their friendship, saying, "'You never saw him without getting delight from his presence.' Sometimes he would grow abstracted in the train of his own thought, and Father Ignatius Rice remembers an occasion when he was one of a group discussing really bad lines of poetry. Gilbert broke into something Francis was saying with the words, "'That irritating person Milton!' Then realizing that he had interrupted her, he broke off and apologized profusely. When she had finished, he went on, "'That irritating person Milton!' I can't find a single bad line in him. Francis one day came in rather suddenly when Dr. Pocock was there, and Gilbert exclaimed, Oh, you've broken it! She looked round, thinking she must have knocked something over. No, he said, it was an idea. It will come back, Francis said. No, he said, it got broken. More usually, he was indifferent to interruptions. Sometimes he welcomed them as grist for his mind's mill. Daily life went on around him, and often in his articles one can find traces of Francis's daily activities as well as his own. Attending him for his broken arm, Dr. Pocock told him at a certain stage to write something, anything, to see if he could use a pen again. After an instant's thought, Gilbert headed his paper with the name of a prominent Jew, and wrote, I am fond of Jews. Jews are fond of money. Never mind of whose. I am fond of Jews. Oh, but when they lose, damn it all, it's funny. The name at the head, which wild horses would not drag from me, is the key to this impromptu. It was really true that Gilbert was fond of very many Jews, in his original group of J.D.C. friends, four Jews had been included, and with three of these, his friendship continued through life. Lawrence Solomon and his wife were among the Beaconsfield neighbors, and he saw them often. There was another kind of Jew he very heartily disliked, but he was at great pains to draw this distinction himself. Speaking at the Jewish West End Literary Society in 1911, he put the question of what the real Jewish problem was. The Jews, he said, were a race born civilized. You never met a Jewish clod or yokel. They represented one of the highest of civilized types. But while all the other races had local attachments, 
the Jews were universal and scattered. They could not be expected to have patriotism for the countries in which they made their homes. Their patriotism could be only for their race. In principle, he believed in the solution of Zionism. And then the reporter, in large letters, made a headline. Mr. Chesterton said that, speaking generally, as with most other communities, the poor Jews were nice and the rich were nasty. Many years later, in Palestine, he was to be driven around the country, as he described in the New Jerusalem, by one of these less wealthy Jews, who had sacrificed his career in England to his national idealism. And later yet, after G.K.'s death, Rabbi Wise, a leader of American Jewry, paid him a tribute. In a letter to Cyril Clements, dated September 8, 1937. Indeed, I was a warm admirer of Gilbert Chesterton. Apart from his delightful art and his genius in many directions, he was, as you know, a great religionist. He as Catholic, I as Jew, could not have seen eye to eye with each other. And he might have added, particularly seeing that you are cross-eyed. But I deeply respected him. When Hitlerism came, he was one of the first to speak out, with all the directness and frankness of a great and unabashed spirit. Blessing to his memory. End of chapter 15, part 2. Recording by Candace Tuttle.